I know all of you came to church this morning thinking, wouldn't it be great to hear a story about a venomous snake infestation? <laughs> well, you came to the right place. Uh, we continue to follow the children of Israel on their wilderness wanderings, and today we're looking at the 21st chapter in the book of Numbers, the story of the bronze serpent, as was just read for you. Yet another strange biblical story, yet we are compelled to give it our attention for no lesser reason than this. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave it his attention. And you heard in our gospel reading from John 3 this morning, we heard Jesus refer to this story as an analogy for the salvation that he brings. So if we would know more of Christ, we must know more of the bronze serpent. And that is what we seek to do today. So let me pray for our time together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which speaks of Jesus Christ on every page. It is your desire that we should come to know you, and you have revealed yourself most fully to us in Jesus. Therefore, open our hearts to the power of this word, that we might trust in him alone to heal and to save, that we might look to him in the midst of our most desperate darkness and in the time of joyous light as well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you enjoy sculpture? It seems to me that sculpture is unique among the arts and that it is truly creation by destruction. The sculptor's art's not the art of adding paint or ink to a canvas, building something from nothing. Instead, the sculptor cuts pieces away from what is already there, almost as if the sculpture is trapped inside the rock and the artist must cut away to reveal it. God is like the sculptor in this aspect. He both destroys and creates. And often he destroys in order to create. God describes himself this way throughout the scriptures. He tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 2.6 tells us, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Job 5.18 tells us, He wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. The prophet Hosea writes, He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. You see, our God is holy, and that means he does have to deal with our sin, sometimes in painful and destructive ways. But our God is also merciful. He also saves us from our sin and delivers us to new life. The one who afflicts us is also the one who heals us. And knowing this about God, I think, helps us to see what he's up to here in Numbers 21. So if you look at Numbers 21, verse 4, we read, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Essentially, Israel couldn't take the straightest route to their destination. Their cousins, the Edomites, refused to let them pass through their land, so they had to take the long way around. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been getting impatient with the Second Avenue construction. 
and that's really only a very minor inconvenience. So I can understand why the Israelites would get impatient having to go days out of their way through a desert with little food or water. But it's not just that they get impatient. The problem is that their frustration causes them to lose faith. It causes them to rebel against God. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now things get personal there, don't they? It's not just the Israelites saying, we are frustrated. They're saying, you don't really care for us, God. You want us to die. And once again, they despise God and they despise the provision he's given them. Now, aren't we often like this? How has God richly provided for us? Hasn't he given us his only son and promised us eternal life with him? And yet, when circumstances become difficult, all that feels so thin and so far off. We're hurting now, God. We need you right now. And the tyranny of the urgent pushes out the promises of God, and our faith fails. Now, despite their accusations to the contrary, God does love Israel, and his justice is part of that love. And God knows that if they continue to turn away from him, it will mean devastation and ruin for Israel. If they were to go back to Egypt, nothing but slavery and death await them. And so God wouldn't be a loving father if he didn't rebuke his wayward children and turn them back toward the path of life. And so God brings judgment upon Israel for their rebellion. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Ten times, God says, Israel has rebelled against him in the wilderness, the same number of plagues in Egypt. Israel would rather be in Egypt. They would rather be Egypt. So ten times, God responds by treating them the same way he treated the Egyptians. He plagues them. He afflicts them. And here he plagues them with snakes, just as he once plagued Egypt with frogs and gnats. And so this is Yahweh fulfilling that first part of those passages that I read earlier, where Yahweh is the one who both kills and makes alive. This is the first side of that coin. Here, Yahweh shows himself to be the God who kills and wounds and shatters and tears. And it is a fearful thing. Now, I don't know about you all, but this particular judgment sounds like the worst possible option to me. If I had to choose, I think I would rather be swallowed up by the earth or instantly consumed by fire. But infestation of venomous snakes? No, thank you. I mean, I hate snakes. I still catch my breath every time a little garter snake wiggles by while I'm mowing. It literally happened last night. They just surprise you and scare you. And those are harmless snakes. So the idea of camping in a desert filled with venomous, fiery serpents, I don't think so. I'm not doing that. But that's what happens here. God sends snakes as a form of judgment on Israel. 
Now, aside from making your skin crawl, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Why did God choose to use snakes as his means of judgment? To quote theologian Dr. Henry Jones, snakes? Why did it have to be snakes? Actually, I'm pretty sure my fear of snakes stems from watching Indiana Jones as a kid, so maybe that's the problem. But Indy makes a good point, doesn't he? Why snakes? Why did God judge Israel in this way? Uh, the snakes are actually called nekashim seraphim in the Hebrew. It means fiery serpents or burning serpents. But what are fiery serpents? That sounds even worse. Serpents is bad enough. What are fiery serpents? Well, it's hard to say. It may mean that they were venomous snakes. When they bit someone, it was a burning, stinging bite. But the word could also refer to their coloring. They had a fiery appearance. They were reddish or orangish in color. And of course, both may be true. We know that there are copper-colored venomous snakes called carpet vipers in this region. Probably that's what's in view here. But I think there's actually more to this description as well. I think the reference to fire is very significant because we see lots of fire throughout the Exodus story, don't we? Now, we tend to associate fire with Satan, with the devil. We tend to associate snakes with Satan, too. But who is the person most associated with fire in the Exodus story? It's God, isn't it? God is associated with fire throughout the Exodus. Think about it. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. He sends fire from the sky with hail during the plagues on Egypt. God leads Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of fire. He descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud of smoke and fire. God judges Nadab and Abihu and hundreds of other Israelites with consuming fire. In fire, God descends upon the tabernacle after it is built. And of course, the consuming fire of Yahweh eats the sacrifices of the altar. So if you look at the places where we have fire in the Exodus story, it's almost always related to God's presence in both positive and negative aspects. Right From the positive aspect, the fire of God leads his people. It lights their way and it accepts them through sacrifice. From the negative aspect, when Israel rebels, the fire of God destroys them. And so these fiery serpents then are a continuation of this symbolism. They represent the fire of Yahweh. You could say that Yahweh himself is the fiery serpent in this sense. These snakes are flickering flames of God's judgment licking at the heels of those who have rebelled against him. Now, we don't often associate God with serpents either. We usually think of Satan as the serpent. But remember, the Exodus story has already portrayed Yahweh as a serpent once before. You remember when God changed Moses' staff into a serpent before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's magicians were able to mimic that feat. But then Moses' serpent devoured their serpents. That's because the serpent was a sign of royal authority in Egypt. And that miracle with Moses' staff, that was a prophecy that the greater serpent, Yahweh, would devour the lesser serpent, Pharaoh. Numbers 21.6 tells us, The Lord judged his people with fiery serpents. The fire of Yahweh bites and stings his adversaries. 
It's awful to think about, isn't it? Some might say, well, that's just the God of the Old Testament for you. All about fire and wrath and judgment. Not like the God of the New Testament, who is only loving and kind. Actually, you know who talks a lot about fire? Jesus. Jesus says, trees that don't bear fruit are to be thrown into the fire. He says, shaft that is separated from the wheat is thrown into the fire. Jesus says it's better to pluck out the eye that causes you to sin than to be thrown into the fire. He says those who reject the poor will be cast into the fire. He says he who does not abide in the sun will be thrown into the fire. And so the fire of God burns just as hot in the Son of God. You can't divide the scriptures on this point. The New Testament book of Hebrews, in fact, writes about these two sides of God's fire, the good and the bad. Hebrews 10.26 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That would be the good fire, the altar fire that accepts us, that purifies us, that draws us near to God. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's the bad fire, the fire of judgment. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here in Numbers 21, we see how fearful it is. Now, thankfully, God does not usually send fiery serpents to judge us. But when we disobey God, when we turn from the path he has called us to, we are often plagued by the effects and consequences of our sin, just as the Israelites were plagued by these snakes. Our sin bites at our relationships. It strikes at our families. It poisons our communities. Our sin is very destructive. And so it's actually a mercy that God often allows us to face the consequences of our sin because sometimes that's the only thing that will turn us back to Him in repentance and faith. And that's what happens to the Israelites. Look at verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Israelites actually do the right thing here. We don't often see them doing that. They confess their sin. They confess not only that they have sinned, they confess how they have sinned. We know we have sinned. We sinned by speaking against the Lord. We spoke as if he didn't care for us, as if he wouldn't provide for us. That was a lie. We know that's not true. And we sinned by speaking against you, Moses. You are God's chosen leader. You are the mediator between us and God. When we spoke against you, we were speaking against God's plan and God's provision. And so though he has stood in the gap for this people time and time again, and though they continually betray and rebel against him, Moses prays for them once again. It's just like Christ praying on the cross for those who put him there. 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And though the Israelites have continually dishonored God and continually disobeyed him, God hears the prayers of Moses and he provides a way of salvation. Just as he hears the prayers of Christ on the cross and in Christ provides the way of salvation for all his enemies. But here in Numbers 21, I guess we should expect it. We get a strange form of salvation too, don't we? Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, why doesn't God just make the snakes go away? Why build this image? Why have the people look at it to be healed? Let's think about this for a minute. First, why make a serpent? Well, at least we can say that the image matches the affliction, doesn't it? Snakes are the problem. Maybe a snake can be the solution. Anthropologists sometimes call this sympathetic magic. It was very common in the ancient world. Uh, maybe the best biblical parallel would be in 1 Samuel 5. Remember when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and God afflicted them with tumors and with mice. What did they do? They made gold tumors and gold mice and they offered them to Yahweh to appease his anger. The, the same idea is at work here. By serpents you are afflicted, by a serpent shall you be healed. And this brings us back to what I said about God earlier. Maybe the Israelites were supposed to learn this from this incident. The one who afflicts us will also be the one to heal us. Remember what the scriptures say about God. He who kills is he who makes alive. He who wounds is he who heals. God is the one who sent the judgment, but God is also the one who brings salvation. God may take us through the valley of the shadow of death, but he is also the shepherd who will bring us safely through. And so we need to know that, so we will trust God when we're in that valley. The one who afflicts us will also be the one who heals us. Now why put this bronze serpent on a pole? Why do that with it? Well, it's a practical consideration, isn't it? This way the bronze serpent can be seen by everyone in the camp at all times. It's lifted high. It is exposed. I mean, if you, have, if you get bit by a snake, you don't have time to be running around the camp looking for the bronze serpent. Like right? You need to turn around and look at it and see it and be healed in time. And so that means the sin and the rebellion is exposed, and yet so is the cure. Now think about this. How did this bronze serpent work? How did it heal? I mean, this isn't the most logical snake bite remedy, right? If you got bit by a snake and someone said, here, look at this metal snake that I made. This will fix it. You would say, you're crazy. Get away from me. Send for an ambulance, right? But the power to save wasn't in the bronze serpent, was it? It's not a magical statue. It's not an idol. God is the one who heals the people. And so looking to this bronze serpent, this sort of illogical cure, meant that they had to trust God. 
Trust that he would do what he promised. This is his word. Look to the serpent, I will heal you. And so it's about faith. It's about taking God at his word, obeying him, and trusting him to heal. And so the people were saved. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The one who afflicted them was also the one who saved them. It's really the ultimate lesson of the wilderness for Israel. The God who called them out into this wilderness and all its hardships, this same God would be the one to bring them through to new life, to a new world, just as he promised. Trust him and take him at his word. Now the New Testament gives us further insight into the story of the bronze serpent. In John 3... Jesus is talking with a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus. And they're talking about this incredible new thing that God is doing in Jesus. And Jesus refers to this story as an illustration of his own mission. I imagine most of you are familiar with John 3.16. But this is the verse right before that. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If we were to look elsewhere in John's gospel, we would see that when Jesus talks about himself being lifted up, he's talking about the crucifixion. John 12, 31 shows us this. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John explains, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is talking about the crucifixion. Jesus is saying there's a correspondence between these things. Christ lifted up on the cross is like the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole. Israel looking to the bronze serpent is like all people being drawn to Christ, the crucified one. How is Jesus like the serpent? It seems a strange comparison. In this sense that Jesus also became the symbol of our affliction. Jesus became the symbol of that which plagued us. The Apostle Paul teaches us this. Jesus who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. On the cross, Jesus became the image of our sin, the image of our affliction, the image of our judgment. We see him there as a man under the curse, a man hung from a tree, a man bearing the wrath of God for sin. And so just as the serpent was lifted up on a pole, exposed for all to see, so Jesus was lifted up on the cross for all to see. And he was paraded before the crowds, naked and exposed. And the Romans did it in order to mock him, to humiliate him. But according to John, what they intended as his humiliation is actually Jesus' exaltation. Because when Jesus was lifted on that cross, he was actually being lifted up as the Savior for all mankind. And so the whole world can look to the cross and see the new and greater bronze serpent, Jesus Christ. 
And all who look at him with eyes of faith are cured from sin, snatched from the fire of judgment, and delivered from eternal death. So here is the good news that I want you to see in this strange passage from Numbers 21. The judge is also the Savior. The one who afflicts us is the one who heals us. And I think this is especially helpful when we are confronted by our own sin. Even if we have given our lives to Christ as Lord in our fallen state, we still rebel against him and against his word. And when we sin, there is temptation for us to turn away from God, to hide from him, to reject him. But Numbers 21 teaches us that when we feel the consequence of our sin, that is actually the time to be turning towards God. Because the God who wounds is also the God who heals. The judge is also the Savior. And this is what we see in the cross. And when you think about it, it's an ugly thing to look upon, isn't it? It's a device of punishment and torture for criminals. What a strange thing to decorate our church with. And yet it is that very figure of judgment and wrath that has become our greatest comfort. We glory in the cross. That symbol of guilt has become for us a symbol of freedom. That symbol of suffering has become for us a symbol of healing. That tree of death has become for us the tree of life. So brothers and sisters, when you are plagued by your sin, don't look to yourself, don't look to the world, look to the cross. God has raised a better bronze serpent for you. Trust that Christ became your sin, and in Christ your sin was nailed to the cross, and in Christ your sin breathed its last, and in Christ your sin died on that cross. And so that cross is a sign to you that by his wounds you have been healed. It is a sign to you that one day all wounds will be fully and finally healed. All wrongs put right and all death undone. Therefore raise your eyes to the cross. Look at Jesus and live. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you overcame the sting of death and you opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Lord, keep us from sin. And when we do sin, let us not look to our own efforts, but to you, to see you crucified, to know your grace, to trust in your healing power, and to live the life abundant as your forgiven sons and daughters. What good news this is, Lord. Help us to lift high this glorious cross for all the world to see, that they too might be healed and truly live. In your strong name we pray, amen.